Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from A Treatise on Bread and Bread Making by Sylvester Graham. Most people love bread, but we don't often pay enough attention to how bread is made. This story is all about bread and bread making, and I look forward to reading this to you as you slowly fall asleep. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. I'm truly grateful that you have chosen this podcast to help you fall asleep. Special thank you to every listener that I have heard from this week. Thank you to Omurda for your lovely comment on CastBox. I'm glad the podcast is continuing to help you fall asleep. Thank you to iTunes listener, Hello from DC2, for your lovely review on iTunes. And thank you to Bread Blooms for your lovely Insta story. If bread is your thing, then tonight's episode is for you. If you're a regular listener of the show and want to say thank you, a great way to support the show is to become a Patreon or sponsor at boytosleep.com. For all the other listeners out there who find the podcast beneficial, please leave a review and comment in your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. If you would like, you can also say hello at boytosleep.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. You can also find me on Facebook by searching Boy to Sleep Podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. A Treatise on Bread and Bread Making by Sylvester Graham Preface There are probably few people in civilized life who, were the question put to them directly, would not say that they consider bread one of the most, if not the most important article of diet which enters into the food of man. And yet there is, in reality, almost a total and universal carelessness about the character of bread. Thousands in civic life will, for years, and perhaps as long as they live, eat the most miserable trash that can be imagined in the form of bread and never seem to think that they can possibly have anything better nor even that it is an evil to eat such vile stuff as they do. And if there is occasionally an individual who is troubled with some convictions that his bread is not quite what it should be, He knows not how to remedy the difficulty, for it is a serious truth 
that although nearly every human being in civilized life eats bread of some kind or another, yet scarcely anyone has sufficient knowledge of the true principles and processes concerned in bread making and of the actual causes of the bad qualities of bread to know how, with any degree of certainty, to avoid bad and secure good bread. I have thought, therefore, that I could hardly do society a better service than to publish the following treatise on a subject which, whether people are aware of it or not, is in reality of very great importance to the health and comfort of every one. It has been prepared for the press with more haste, under more embarrassments from the other engagements, and with less severity of revision than I could wish. Yet whatever may be its defects of arrangement, method or style, I have taken care to have the principles correct, and the instructions such as, if attended to, will enable every one who is hardly devoted to the object to make good bread. I must, however, acknowledge that I have very little expectation that proper attention will be paid to this subject. As long as the dietetic habits of society continue to be what they are, while the various preparations of animal food constitute so important a portion of human element, the quality of bread will be greatly disregarded and neglected, and people will continue almost universally to be cursed with poor bread. Nevertheless, I trust some good will be done by the little work I now send out, and I am not without hope, and it will be the means of a considerable improvement in the quality of bread, and, as a natural and necessary consequence, an improvement in the health and happiness of those who consume it. That it may prove thus beneficial to my fellow creatures in a high degree is my hearty and fervent desire. In the English version of the Sacred Scriptures, the term bread is frequently used to signify vegetable food in general. Thus, in Genesis the third, the Lord says to Adam, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread or food, till thou return to the ground. The most extended sense of the word, however, according to general usage, comprehends all vegetable substances which enter into the diet of man, such as the seeds or grain, nuts, fruits, roots, etc. And in this extended sense, bread in some form or other has been the principal article in the diet of mankind. From the earliest generations of the human race to the present time, 
except among the few small and scattered tribes, which have perhaps ever since the days of Noah in different parts of the earth subsisted mainly on animal food. It is nearly certain that the primitive inhabitants of the earth ate their food with very little, if any, artificial preparation. The various fruits, nuts, seeds, roots and other vegetable substances on which they fed were eaten by them in their natural state with no other grinding than which was done by teeth. As the human family increased, the population became more dense and extended, and providential measures more necessary. The condition and circumstances of society gradually led to the invention and adoption of the simple and at first rude arts of domestic life. Among these was that of bruising the harder articles of their food, such as nuts and seeds or grain on flat stones, selected and kept for the purpose. By constant use, these stones in time became hollowed out, and being thereby rendered more convenient, Men at length began to form mortars and pestles from stones, and probably the next step was the construction of the rude kind of hand mills, which continued in use for many centuries, and indeed which, with the stone mortars, have throughout all ages and in almost every portion of the earth been used in the ruder states of society. When men became acquainted with the use of fire, they probably often parched their corn or grain before they pounded it, and afterwards they learned to mix it with water into the consistency of dough, and to bake this in an unleavened or unfermented state on flat stones before the fire, or in the hot ashes or hot earth, or in the rude ovens which they formed by digging holes in the earth, into which they put heated stones and slightly covered them with leaves or grass, and then laid in the article they wished to bake, and over this strewed some leaves, and then covered the whole with earth. This kind of unleavened bread undoubtedly constituted a very important, if not the principal article of artificially prepared food, in the diet of the primitive inhabitants of the earth. For many centuries and the same, or very nearly the same kind of bread continued in general use, down to the days of Abraham, and it is probable that the unleavened bread used by his descendants at the feast of the Passover, before and after they left Egypt, was of the same kind. It is hardly possible, however, that it could have been otherwise than that at a much earlier period Larger quantities of this dough were occasionally made, 
than were immediately baked, and consequently portions of it were suffered to stand and ferment, and by this means men were in process of time, learned to make leavened or raised bread. At how early a date loaf or raised bread came into common use, it is impossible now to ascertain with any considerable degree of precision. The scriptures do not afford us any evidence that Abraham was accustomed to such bread, but the fact that Moses, at the institution of the supper of the Passover, the night before the Jews left Egypt, commanded them strictly to abstain from leavened bread, and to eat only the unleavened, proves conclusively that the Israelites at least were the accustomed to fermented or raised bread. Neither history nor tradition enables us to speak with any degree of confidence in regard to the period at which other nations became acquainted with the art of bread-making. But from all that has come down to us from ancient times, we learn that the primitive generations of every nation subsisted on fruits and other products of vegetable kingdom in their uncooked or natural state. The Greeks assert that they were taught the art of making bread by their god. Pan and Pliny informs us that this art was not known at Rome till near 600 years after the foundation of that city. The Roman armies, he says, on their return from Macedonia, brought Grecian bakers into Italy. Before this time... The Romans prepared their meal in a kind of pap or soft pudding, and on this account Pliny calls them pap eaters. But though the Egyptians and Israelites were probably among the earliest portions of the human family who became acquainted with the art of making loaf or raised bread, the quality of their bread continued to be exceedingly simple and course for many generations. Even after the establishment of the Hebrew nation in Palestine, in the most splendid days of Jerusalem, at the period of the highest refinement of the Jews, in the arts of civil and domestic life, their fine flour, from which their choicest bread and cakes were made, was in comparison with modern superfine flour, extremely coarse, ground mostly by females, in hand mills constructed and kept for that purpose. From Rome the art of bread making was very slowly found its way over considerable portions of Europe. A thousand years after Julius Caesar first entered Britain, the rude people of that country were little acquainted with raised bread. Even at present, says Professor Thompson, 
Loaf bread is seldom used except by the higher classes of inhabitants in the northern countries of Europe and Asia. In Eastern and Southern Asia, rice constitutes the principal breadstuff, and this is generally prepared with great simplicity. In Middle and Western Asia, and in Africa, bread, though made of different kinds of grain, is prepared with almost equal simplicity. In Scotland, Ireland, and indeed throughout Europe generally, Barley, oats, rye, potatoes, peas, beans, chestnuts, and other vegetables constitute the breadstuff of most of the labouring people or peasantry. In the islands of the Pacific and Southern Oceans, the bread of the inhabitants consists of the plantain, bananas, yams, breadfruit, and other like vegetables simply roasted, baked or boiled. Bread, therefore, of some kind or other, made of some of the products of the vegetable kingdom, has probably in almost every portion of the world and every period of time been one of the first and most important and universal articles of food, artificially prepared by cooking, which has entered into the diet of mankind, and hence it has with great prosperity been called the staff of life. If man were to subsist wholly on alimentary substances in their natural state, or without any artificial preparation by cooking, then he would be obliged to use his teeth freely in masticating his food, and by doing so, not only preserve his teeth from decay and keep them in sound health, but at the same time, and by the same means, would he thoroughly mix his food with the fluid of his mouth, and thus prepare it both for swallowing and for the action of the stomach, and by the same means also, he would be made to swallow his food slowly, as the welfare of the stomach and of the whole system requires he should. Again, if man were to subsist wholly on uncooked food, he would never suffer from the improper temperature on his aliment. Hot substances taken into the mouth serve more directly and powerfully to destroy the teeth than any other cause which acts immediately upon them, and hot food and drink received into the stomach always in some degree debilitate that organ, and through it every other organ and portion of the whole system, diminishing as an ultimate result the vital power of every part, impairing every function, and increasing the susceptibility of the whole body to the action of disturbing causes and predisposing it to disease. 
Again, if man were to subsist entirely on food in a natural state, he would never suffer from concentrated aliment. Every substance in nature which God has prepared for the food of man consists of both nutritious and non-nutritious matter. The proportions vary in different kinds of food. Thus in hundred pounds of potatoes, there are about 25 pounds of nourishing matter, while in a hundred pounds of good wheat, there are about 80 pounds of nourishing matter. There are a few products of the vegetable kingdom which are still higher in the scale of nutriment than wheat, and on the other hand, there is a boundless variety ranging below wheat, extending down to 3 or 4% of nourishment. But nature, without the aid of human art, produces nothing for the alimentary use of man, which is purely a concentrated nutrient substance. And God has constructed man in strict accordance with his general economy of nature. He has organized and endowed the human body with reference to the condition and qualities of those substances in nature, which he designed for the food of man. And consequently, while man obeys the laws of constitution and relation which should govern him in regard to his food, he preserves the health and integrity of his elementary organs and through them of his whole nature, and so far as his dietetic habits are concerned, secures the highest and best conditions of his nature. But if he disregards these laws, and by artificial means greatly departs from the natural adaptation of things, he inevitably brings evil on himself and on his posterity. It has been fully proved that bulk or a due proportion of innutritious matter in our food is quite as important to health as nourishment. Human beings may subsist from childhood to extreme old age on good potatoes and pure water alone and enjoy the best and most uninterrupted health and possess the greatest muscular power and ability to endure protracted fatigue and exposure. But if the purely nutrient matter of the potato be separated out by artificial means and human beings, fed exclusively on this concentrated form of aliment and water pure, they will soon perish because the alimentary organs of man are not constituted and endowed for such kinds of food. And this is true of all animals, in the higher orders at least. We know that dogs fed on sugar and water, gum and water, fine flour bread and water, or any other kind of concentrated aliment will soon languish and droop and emaciate and die. But if a due proportion of proper innutritious substance 
be mixed with these concentrated forms of aliment, the dogs will subsist on them and remain healthy. So if horses, cows, deer, sheep, and other grass-eating animals be fed on grain alone, they will soon lose their appetite and begin to droop, and will shortly perish. But if a due proportion of straw or shavings of wood be given with them their grain, they will continue to do well. Man is affected in the same manner. He cannot long subsist on purely nutritious substances, and the reason is not because these substances have no azote or nitrogen in them, nor is it because man necessarily requires a variety of elementary substances, but simply and exclusively because the anatomical construction and vital powers of the alimentary organs are constitutionally adapted to alimentary substances, which consist of both nutritious and innutritious matter, and therefore a due proportion of innutritious matter in the food of man is as essential to the welfare of his alimentary organs as a due proportion of nourishment is to the support of his body. Again, if a man subsisted wholly on uncooked food, he would not only be preserved from improper concentrations, but also from pernicious combinations of alimentary substances. The alimentary organs of man, like those of the horse, ox, sheep, dog, cat, and most or all other animals of the higher orders, if not in fact of all other animals without limitation, possess the vital capability of so accommodating themselves to emergencies that they can be made to digest almost every vegetable and animal substance in nature. Nevertheless, it is incontestably true that the alimentary organs of man and of all animals can manage one kind of food at a time better than a mixed ingestion, for it is important that the solvent fluids secreted by the stomach and other organs belonging to the alimentary apparatus should be at the same time equally well adapted to the entirely different kinds of foods. I do not say that the alimentary organs of man cannot, by long habits, be brought into such a condition as that, while that condition remains, they will not manage a mixed ingestion of animal and vegetable food with more immediate comfort and satisfaction to themselves and the individual than they will an ingestion of pure vegetable food. But this does not militate against the general principle in the least, for it is nevertheless true, and the same organs are capable of being brought into a condition 
in which they will manage an ingestion of unmixed food of either kind, with less embarrassment and injury to themselves and the whole system than they can the mixed food in any condition. Hence, it is a general law of nature concerning the dietetic habits of man, and that simplicity of food at each meal is essential to the highest well-being of the individual and of the race. God has unquestionably provided a great and rich variety of substances for man's nourishment and enjoyment, but it is equally certain that he did not design that man should partake of all this variety at a single meal, nor in a single day nor season, but from meal to meal, from day to day, and from season to season, varying his enjoyment in strictest consistency with the great laws of his nature. And hence all artificial combinations of alimentary substances, and particularly those of a heterogeneous kind, and yet more especially the concentrated forms, must be more or less pernicious to the alimentary organs, and through them to the whole system. Finally, if man subsisted wholly on uncooked food, the undepraved integrity of his appetite, his thorough mastication and slow swallowing, and his simple meal would greatly serve to prevent his overeating, and thus save him from the ruinous effects of one of the most destructive causes operating in civic life. Whatever may be the material, therefore, from which bread is made, when the artificial preparation is of that simple character, which leaves the proportions of nutritious and innutritious properties, as nature combined them, and effects little change in the nutritious principles, and retains the natural requisition for the function of the teeth, and thus secures the proper chewing of the food, and the mixing of it with the fluids of the mouth, and swallowing of it slowly, the artificial process militates very little, if at all, against any of the psychological or vital interests of the body. But if our artificial process of bread-making concentrates the nutrient properties and destroys the due proportion between the bulk and nourishment and forms improper changes and combinations in the nutrient elements and does away the necessity for mastication or chewing and presents the food in too elevated a temperature or too hot and enables us to swallow it too rapidly with little or no exercise of the teeth and without properly mixing it with the fluids of the mouth. The artificial process or cooking is decidedly and often exceedingly inimical 
not only to the vital interests of the elementary organs, but of the whole human system. In all civilized nations, and particularly in civic life, bread, as I have already stated, is far the most important article of food which is artificially prepared, and in our country and climate, it is the most important article that enters into the diet of man, and therefore it is of the finest consideration that its character should, in every respect, be as nearly as possible consistent with the laws of constitution and relation established in our nature, or with the anatomical construction and vital properties and powers and interest of our systems. If we contemplate the human constitution in its highest and best condition, in the possession of its most vigorous and unimpaired powers, and ask what must be the character of our bread in order to preserve the constitution in that condition, the answer most indubitably is that the coarse unleavened bread of early times, when of proper age, was one of the least removed from the natural state of food. One of the simplest and most wholesome forms of artificial preparations, and best adapted to fill the laws of constitution and relation, and therefore best adapted to sustain the most vigorous and healthy state of the elementary organs, and the highest and best condition of the whole nature of man, as a general and permanent fact, and hence it is very questionable whether loaf or raised bread can be made equally conducive to all the interests of our nature, with the simple unleavened bread. I am aware that many professional men entertain a very different opinion on this subject. The speak of unleavened bread as being less nourishing and less easily digested. This may be true to a limited extent. In special cases of impaired and debilitated elementary organs, but I am confident that as a general fact, the notion is entirely erroneous. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it, and I hope it hasn't made you too hungry. I also hope that it's made you feel drowsy. I'll be working on a new episode that I'll be bringing out for you very soon. But in the meantime... Good night.